Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening today. I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. And our podcast episode today is supported by Avanos. Just a disclaimer that the podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice and is for information only. And we advise exercising your own judgment before using any of the information provided. So on to critical care feeding. We know that feeding ICU patients is a really important part of their management, but feeding might be delayed um, and that leaves patients with suboptimal nutrition and can compromise their recovery. And one of the many reasons might be the delay in placing a feeding tube. So today we're going to look at the role dietitians can play in improving this by considering the skills that we can develop um, in placing post-pyloric feeding tubes in critically ill patients. Can dietitians who do work in ICU units upskill in this area? What are the challenges? What are the barriers that might be faced? So I don't know any of the answers to these questions. So today I'm talking to Associate Professor Leanne Chappell about her experiences in using electric magnetic stylet nasogastric, nasointestinal feeding tube technology, which is quite the mouthful, Leanne, um, to successfully and safely practice tubes in practice. Leanne is the Senior Critical Care Dietitian at the Royal Adelaide Hospital and a Research Fellow at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. She leads the Intensive Care Nutrition Research Program at the hospital, conducting research focusing on nutrition physiology during critical illness and early recovery. She's also got an interest in using technology to improve nutrition care and has been um, placing feeding tubes in critical ill patients for the last couple of years, um, as well as in her research. So thanks for joining me today, Leanne, and welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jane, to talk about this great topic. Now, just give us a little bit of background. As I said, you're clinically um, the dietitian in intensive care unit at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, but you also mm-hmm. lead the research program. What is your sort of day-to-day involved and how did you come mm-hmm. to this position? Sure. Um, day-to-day is very busy and very varied, which I love. Um, so I've been working as a dietitian for too long. Um, I looked at the math just before and it's about 15 minutes. I'm 15 um, years. It's all relatively, Anne. (laughs) 15 years is short to some of us. It's gone very fast. (laughs) Um, So I've worked clinically around Australia and rural um, in Canberra as a clinical educator and a university lecturer um, at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, which is where a lot of my um, rural sort of acute clinical experience came from. Um, I moved back to Adelaide in 2014 to start my PhD. 
um, which really came up during my career out of frustration that there wasn't any evidence to really support what I was doing with some of my patients. Um, and my PhD was in traumatic brain injury and nutrition, particularly post-ICU. Um, so I really wanted to try and fill that evidence gap. Um, and really my career from there has been looking at ways to create more evidence for dietitians so that we can practice um, in a safe and effective way. Um, so now I work part-time clinically. So I work two days a week at the, the Royal Adelaide Hospital in ICU there. Um, and I also work in a research capacity through the University of Adelaide. Um, so my day-to-day -day can look really different depending on what studies I've got running, um, what grants that I have to write. And mm. I'm at the very pointy end of submitting a big grant at the moment. Um, yeah, so lots of different things and working with great teams in both of those areas. And just out of interest, how many dietitians uh, cover the ICU unit in yeah, Adelaide Hospital? So the Royal Adelaide Hospital ICU has 48 beds. Um, so we are one of the bigger centres and we have the most number of patient admissions, so over 4,000 patients a year um, oh. within Australia. Um, a lot of those are short stays, so we have a huge turnover, um, mm. which is quite difficult to keep track of a lot of the time. Um, the number of dietitians we have, we have around um, two and a half FTE. We also cover the spinal unit and the cardiothoracic unit as part of that. Um, so, yeah, yeah, quite a small number of dietitians compared to other benchmarking, particularly yeah, I was wondering paid documents. If would be considered yeah. well-resourced or not. Yeah, um, I think because a lot of our patients are short-stay, um, we do a lot of post-op. Um, we have a right. big cardiac unit. Um, so around 20% of our patients are mechanically ventilated, which is a lot lower compared to other centres that have a similar number of beds like the Alfred or the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Mm. Um, so we still experience a lot of um, sick patients, a lot of um, use of enteral nutrition, but probably a little bit less compared to some of those other major centres. Yeah, so... I guess feeding and led by a lot of Australian dietitian researchers in ICU um, has really evolved um, over mm -hmm. recent years and we know there's a lot of challenges to meeting the requirements and the ICU day studies show us that still probably underfeeding might be an issue mm -hmm. um, in the critical care sort of setting. What are some of the reasons for, for underfeeding? And is tube placement one of those reasons? Yeah. So the data that I've seen, a lot of the reasons behind sort of extended periods of fasting or reasons for not meeting requirements is, is fasting. Um, so fasting for things like extubation to try and get the patient off the ventilator, fasting for procedures, and particularly in our trauma patients, we see that a lot. Um, and then historically, gastrointestinal dysfunction has been a, a real reason for, for fasting, particularly early on. Um, so that might mean that the patients will have a lower rate of enteral nutrition delivered or they stop enteral nutrition for periods altogether. Um, mostly in Australia and New Zealand, we still use gastro resi gastric residual volumes, so gastric mm. aspirates from the tube to guide how much we feed our patients and as a, as a measure of gastrointestinal dysfunction. Um, but there's a lot of other techniques such as um, abdo distension or regurgitational vomiting that are often used in other countries. So I mentioned that you've been doing this for a couple of years now, placing tubes um, yourself. What sort of led you to develop those skills or want to develop those the skills in, in post-polaric feeding tubes? 
Yeah. Um, I think it came up mostly because of the environment that I was in. So the Royal Adelaide Hospital ICU was always, as far as I've been there, had access to the device that we use to place the tubes at the bedside. Um, a lot of work has been done around gut dysfunction in general and, and placement of feeding tubes by Professor Marianne Chapman and Associate Professor Adam Dean, who were both intensivists at the Royal mm. Adelaide um, and were both my PhD supervisors. So I was always in that environment that was around the placement of the feeding tubes. Um, and they were the ones that really led that and, and trained the doctors up or the intensivists up to, to place the tubes as well. So can you tell us a bit about what that machine is and and what's involved in actually placing a tube? And we keep talking uh, post-pyloric. Perhaps if you could just explain why we're talking post-pyloric specifically. Yeah, sure. So I guess the benefits to the bedside feeding um, equipment is it is done at the bedside. You don't need the patient to go off to radiology or um, endoscopy to have a tube placed. Um, it's a device that you place the sensor on the patient chest and then the feeding tube that you use, it's very similar to a normal gastric or um, intestinal feeding tube, but it has a magnet in the tip that acts as um, a tracking device, basically. So when you place the tube into the patient's esophagus, you can see it coming down the esophagus. You can see it following the curvature of the stomach um, and you can see when it gets towards the pylorus and then post-pyloric. Um, some of the benefit of that is you can tell if it's going into the patient's lung and that's something that happens transiently quite frequently when we're placing nasogastric tubes or post-pyloric tubes at the bedside. It's just part of the parcel, particularly if the patient's ventilated because it does tend to follow the ETT yeah. down into the lung. Um, so one of the benefits is you can see if you're going the wrong way and you can pull back and start again. Um, the reason we use it post-pylorically um, is it's it does show you um, a tracking of, of roughly where it's going. So it helps you manipulate the tube a little bit as you're placing it. And I can talk more about mm. those techniques a bit later on. Um, and you, so you can see it, if it's curling up in the stomach, then you know to pull out and, and replace it. It doesn't mean that you can control where it goes, which is probably one of the most frustrating parts of it. Yeah. Um, and and that's just, yeah, part of the, the way the placement's done. Um, and you can't confirm using that. So some centres, I think, internationally may um, feed postpylorically just based on um, a bedside technique. But in our centre, we x-ray to confirm placement right. in all of our patients, exactly the same way as we do for all nasogastric tubes. Yeah. So it's the sensor that you're placing externally on their chest that allows you to actually visually see that's what's right. going on yeah. inside. That's right. And you can see um, there's there's three different views. So you can see laterally. Um, so you can see as it comes down the esophagus and roughly where it is compared to the sensor. Um, and you can see how close it is. So as you're going into the stomach, the sensor gets closer because the stomach sits closer yep. to the skin. Um, and then as you go post-pyloric, it will dip down. So you can see that view. So yep. there's, there's three sort of views that give you a good indication of where you are within within the gastrointestinal tract. And how long does it actually take to do that placement? <laughs> uh, it really depends. Well, it depends on the patient, I guess. It really does, yeah. So patient anatomy is all different. Reasons for having the post tube may vary. Mm. Um, if someone is really intolerant, um, and we've had patients that aren't even tolerating 10 meals of feed an hour, then their pylorus is just closed shut. 
Right. And so the tube can get to that position and it doesn't go any further. Yeah. Um, so sometimes the tube will go straight in and it will take two minutes to do. Mm. Um, other patients, you could sit there for 40 minutes and and just have no success. There's lots of different techniques that we can use um, to sort of help with that, but it's not a 100% success all the time um, type of thing. And, and I probably have a limit on how long I would persevere for, um, yeah. and that would depend on the patient, how awake they are, um, other factors that might increase the risk of bleeding or anything like that that um, would determine how long I would continue to try. But I think any more than sort of 45 minutes is is probably too long and not a good use of my time as well. <laughs> and is there anything published, any data about um, dietitians being the ones to um Put the tubes in? Yeah, definitely. So not much, um, but there's a great paper by um, Dr. Rosalie Yandel, who was one of the, the ICU dietitians before I came onto the unit. We worked together for a little while. Um, she really led the way with this and, and what I do would never have happened without her um, really starting the ball rolling many years ago. Um, so she worked on a paper with um, Adam Dean that looked at dietitians placing feeding tubes. So she was the first person within our unit as a dietitian to place them as part of that research project. Um, and it showed that dietitians could place them um, safely and, and effectively with, with um, getting into the intestine. And have you sort of um, spoken to many dietitians who about doing this? Like is there trepidation or <laughs> fear amongst dietitians about taking the leap into yeah. placing tubes? I think until you actually do it, it's hard to know what to expect. Um, and I remember when I first started doing it, I was quite nervous. Dietitians in general are quite hands-off. And mm. as part of my research role, I have been more hands-on doing things like ultrasound of quadricep muscle or um, I did bioimpedance on newborn babies when I first started doing research in the pregnancy space. Um, so I've never really been fearful of being yeah. hands-on. I, I can take blood. I've done lots of different things. Um, but it's still the patients are really sick and yes. it, it, it is quite nerve-wracking um, taking that step up and, and having these hands-on skills. Um, so I think I have done a few presentations around our um, approval to do the placements and dietitians are excited, I think. So particularly in units where they don't have these bedside tools yes. and they have delays in having the, the tube placed and, and maybe um, for us as dietitians, we're very focused on feeding and so those delays feel really long compared to a doctor yeah. who has other priorities. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of excitement and I think having, you know, more and more people get this ability to place the tubes will um, embed it more within our usual practice. So, so I think there's enthusiasm but there probably is a little bit of trepidation as well. Mm. And obviously... It, traditionally, this has been in the area of doctors and nurses um, mm. to to place the tubes. Can you tell us a little bit about your training? Like, how long did it take you? How did it go? Were you supervised? What yeah. happens to be able to competently place a tube? Yeah, so I think some of the difficulty and and probably why it has taken so long to get the approval for extended scope of practice is that it hasn't really been done in Australia before. Um, so in the UK, they are miles ahead of us with placing feeding tubes. And um, Stephen Taylor has written 
books and, and resources and so many papers around how to place um, post-pyloric tubes at the bedside. So he's really led the way from a dietetic perspective. But in Australia, I think um, it has taken a lot longer to get to the point of having the, the legal approval. Um, one of the difficulties, I think, is that the approval to do it happens on an individual hospital basis. So, and it really varies depending on where you work. Um, and so I think I can definitely talk about how our approval happened, but that's not going to be the same as what will happen at a different site. So, no, be- so, there, so there is no sort of overarching um, recognition of this as a skill for no, dietitians. It's, no. well, it's institution by institution. That's right. And the approval process will be different depending on, on the site practices. So do you have to do at at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, did you have to do a number under supervision before you could do them yeah. on your own or how does so, that work? So the original process was to get the qualification, I guess, as an extended scope of practice through a, a, um, a governing committee. So we designed our own training program um, and then that was approved by the committee. So the steps to doing that were really having medical buy-in. So a lot of the questions were around what are the risks of a dietitian doing that compared to a medical professional. Um, in our centre, only doctors place feeding tubes. It's always the registrars within ICU, um, some of the consultants, but mostly a senior registrar. Um, so nurses don't place any of the feeding tubes at the bedside in our centre. Um, so it was around the risk and we had to have um, medical buy-in both from the ICU um clinical lead, so the medical director, um, and we had great support from Marianne Chapman as the research lead and, and intensivist as well. So we had a quite a long document around what the potential risks were and how they might differ as a dietitian versus a medical practitioner, which, which from our view shouldn't differ if you have the appropriate training and support. No, and I assume the main risk is if something goes wrong. Like, That's right. Then and what do you do? It is knowing what what potential complications there could be um, and to know when it's actually safe to place a post-pyloric. Um, so a lot of patients might have things like a base of skull fracture or nasal fractures that you have to consider. If someone's got low platelets, then they're a higher bleeding risk. Um, so there's quite a few different things that we would look at before we actually even start placing a feeding tube. And we're always collaborating with the medical team to make sure that that patient is safe for that procedure. Um, and the more I do them, the more comfortable I get doing it on my own. But yes. when I was beginning, I would always have someone nearby um, that would be there to support and, and just to talk me through anything that may have gone wrong. Yeah, so I imagine that, yes, yeah, so the decision to place the tube, be it nasogastric or post-pyloric, would be a team decision anyway. You're not just going to decide yeah. that on your own. Yeah. Are there situations where, as a dietitian, you wouldn't actually personally place a tube you would get a doctor to do it or do you just make sure there's a doctor on standby ready just yeah, in case it, it does depend so if the patient um had a base of skull fracture i would wouldn't do it um right. j- yeah um and if there was a medical um like the intensivist or one of the doctors that felt that that was still safe and i felt uncomfortable then i might get them to start the initial placement so they could go down into the esophagus or into the stomach right. and then i could Once do the postpartum part from yeah. there yeah yeah um and when we first started going through all the the legal side of the extended scope of practice that was one of the suggestions um that the doctor could place it into the esophagus and then we could take over from there um, because it is going through the nasal cavity where 
it's mm. probably the most challenging challenging part or where things can go wrong the most. Um, and so for a period of time we were doing it that way. Um, but I think that then you're still the delay. Yeah. In a way, it defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, So that's something that we work through. And I think it's just it's such a change to what we currently do that there is a little bit of fear around it from the beginning. But but we had great medical support with our current director and through Marianne. that yeah, the process was was quite smooth sailing once we'd we'd got through the the paperwork side of things. So can um, you just explain the extended scope of practice? Mm-hmm. Is that um, institution by institution decide what the scope of practice is for a particular profession within their institution? Yeah, so I guess postpartum feeding from a dietitians association perspective. Mm. When we were looking at it, I haven't um, reviewed their policies um, recently, but at that point, it was considered an extended scope of practice. So it wasn't something that was covered by a registration, mm. um, and so then it becomes an institutional right, um, decision. Decision, um, and now. At our institution, we didn't have any allied health that actually had extended scope of practice in any area. We had advanced scope, which is slightly different, but we were the first extended scope. Um, And so a lot of the process took time with working out what that looked like and what that meant and who was responsible and those sorts Mm. of things. Mm. Um, So as part of our credentialing process, we we would watch placement um, occur um, so we had to document the number of times that we'd watched placement and then we did supervised attempts as well. Also as part of that, we um, the c- committee was quite um, wanted us to have the, the knowledge or demonstrate the knowledge of um, anatomy and, mm. and feeding roots. So we have a um, S and LLL, lifelong right. learning component yep. that we do as part of that training. Um, and at the moment it's just the, the senior dietitians that can do the placement. So um, dietitians that have been exposed to intensive care for a reasonable period of time. Um, so myself and um, Julia Gallagher, who I job share, are the two dietitians that can place the tubes in our right. site. So, which I was, I was going to ask. So, there's two dietitians currently at the Royal Adelaide that are there are. to do it. So, yeah. do you have a? Have, do, did you sort of set a arbitrary number of observations and supervised? We did to become credentialed. We did, um, and I think looking at what other centres do, I think that that um, it does vary um, the number that people think. Mm-hmm. I think every patient's different, so I think that. When you're beginning any new skill, you need to really have insight into how comfortable you are doing yes. something. And if something new pops up, then making sure that you're not just going ahead and doing it. So I think that that's one thing that I have really learned that um, often we are very enthusiastic as dietitians, but I think being a little bit timid and not being hands-on actually makes it it's safer because yes. we're not going in and and doing things that we're not comfortable with and making sure that we're working with the medical colleagues. So do you have any um, feel for how commonly it's been adopted by dietitians across Australia? Um, so I'm not sure about others placing post-pyloric tubes um, and, yeah, there, there may be in other centres, um, particularly outside of ICU because I'm not as familiar with clinical no, practice yeah. in those units. Um, I know that at the Alfred, Georgia Hardy is um, placing uh, nasogastric tubes at the bedside. Their credentialing was approved, I think, a, a couple of months ago, right. um, which is exciting to see. And I've definitely had a lot of interest through other presentations I've done of, of people that really want to get it get it going. I guess some of the difficulties are um, 
if you don't have the bedside placement technique at your site, who's going to provide the training? If the doctors don't do it already, then how are you going to learn to do that? So I think there are some credentialing courses that are coming up, um, which people can reach out to, but I think um, historically it it would be difficult to access the equipment and then get the the training required. Yeah, so whilst, you know, you've been doing it over the past couple of years um, and in your research, what do you consider are the advantages to having a dietitian? be the person responsible for placing the tube? Yeah, I think there's multiple advantages for different um, benefits, I guess, or I I think that the patient benefits in that we're able to put the feeding tube in much quicker. Um, So at our centre, because we were doing it at the bedside already, then there wasn't the delays of having a gastro consult and and organising theatre or having, you know, the other Mm. external units outside of ICU being the ones that, Um, had to do the placement. So I think other centres definitely experienced delays in placement because of that. Um, And I know some centres that then would just use supplemental PN because it just takes too long to get a tube in. Um, So I think that there's real benefits to having the bedside technique um, just in general. Um, I think there's benefits from a dietitian doing it in that nutrition's our priority. So we identify when the patients aren't tolerating their feeds um, we can work through strategies to overcome that, but then I think that we're the ones that are really advocating for the patient to um, look at different strategies to improve their nutrition. Um, I also think that the technique can take a little bit of time to do, and so often it doesn't feel like it's something that is high on the medical priority list, which is understandable when they're, they're doing everything else. So I, um, I think we just it fits within our role of improving nutrition for the patient really well. Yeah, and I imagine that if you do have supportive medical staff, they're only too happy to have a task taken away from them. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) They don't have to be worried about just another thing. And as you say, like, you know, they all know nutrition is important, but when you've got a million other things that you've got to consider, you know, critically ill patient, it's will and can fall down the priority list, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's benefits. From a personal point of view, I found that um, having the doctors and nurses see me at the bedside, getting Mm. my hands dirty, I think, rather than sort of sitting in my office and doing a review where I'm not around, I think that that I'm recognised as part of the team a little bit more um, and that I do have this skill that I can add that, supports what they're doing as well. So I think that there's a lot of benefits even outside of what the the, the clinical need, I guess. Yeah, and I guess it's, it's not dissimilar to the scenario where dietitians started to move into also become credentialed as diabetes educators and then could yeah. take over, you know, managing insulin and yeah, blood definitely. glucose testing and that sort of thing. And, again, I think that also shows other people in the healthcare team yeah. that you're broader than just handing over a diet or deciding on an enteral yeah. prescription. Definitely, definitely. And I think that often from what I, what I hear from my medical colleagues is we want lots of things. We want a tube put in and we want yeah. this and we want that, but we're not doing it ourselves. So, um, and, so, and sometimes the placement can take quite some time. Are there scenarios outside of ICU that you see that this would be, could be beneficial or that you yeah. use it and do you use it outside of ICU at the Royal Adelaide? So we don't. Our credentialing only covers us for um, oh, okay. Critical ICU. Care. And right. so, so yeah, I don't place them in any other patient groups. We have had re- requests um, from other units. So 
um, surgical teams in particular. So we've had interest from our burns team about mm. placing that. Um, they have used previous tubes to try and place it in theatre um, and they were looking at even having a, a nurse extendoscope or practice to place it in the burns patients um, and some of our, our surgical patients from a, um, a gut perspective as well. So I think there's definitely potential um, to place it in other units for sure. And just out of interest, because I've never set eyes on the machine or the device, how yeah. big is the, the yeah. equipment required? It's, it's quite small. So it looks very similar to one of the new metabolic carts. Ah, right. um, okay. So almost the size of a blood pressure machine. Um, really, it is just a small sensor that, that connects to the machine and sits on top, um, and then the feeding tube plugs in. So it's a special type of feeding tube um, that's required for it that has the sort of electronics, I guess, to, to plug into the machine. But it's well, just on wheels. It's very portable. Um, yeah, not big at all. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and um, just actually I was just thinking then, during COVID, were there any, like, was that all okay? Because I know that, like, indirect calorimetry kind of stopped a little bit. Um, yeah. So during COVID, we didn't have many patients that really got to the level where they really right. needed postpyloric feeding. I think yeah. we were quite different in South Australia and we were quite protected. We didn't have a lot of COVID patients. That's right. In <laughs> you yeah. were quite protected we were now, I remember, anomaly. having been in Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's something like, I don't know, 90% of our population were vaccinated before we were exposed. So yeah. okay. I think we were very lucky. Um, but we did have discussions about that being a dietitian role. Um, in that we knew that the medical professionals would be much busier during that yeah. time and so we were looking at what we could do to contribute to the team. Um, and so the plan was that we would be the two dietitians that would would place postpyloric tubes and even nasogastric tubes if it got to that, um, right. which thankfully it didn't. Um, and, and there were considerations that you would only really be placing that feeding tube if the patient was really long stay, couldn't tolerate feeds for an extended period of time because the risk of placing it and it's an aerosol generating procedure. So we didn't want to be doing that just no. in anyone. It really needed to be a clear clinical need um, benefit to the patient. So from the experiences you've had, both in terms of setting it up and learning and getting the credentials, what would kind of be your advice if there are dietitians listening who are thinking this would be great in our critical care setting, yeah. what do you suggest? How do they get going? How do they start on this? Yeah, I think the thing that really helped us was having just the support of many people to, to do it. And, and I feel like I've got the credential, but I didn't do the hard work to get to that, that mm. point. Um, so the support of the medical team, you definitely need them wanting you to be there placing the tubes. Um, without that, I just don't think it's ever going to work day to day, let alone yeah. obtaining the approvals. Um, and we had a really supportive dietitian manager. So Rhiannon Crane was so good at persevering um, and working back and forth with the, the credentialing committee to really come up with the strategy that that they would feel comfortable with us doing it. So um, it was probably around a two-year process to to get that paperwork right. through, um, which wouldn't have happened without her and Julia Gallagher as my job share as well at the time. Yeah. So I guess um, if you're in a, a hospital setting and you're interested in this, 
one thing would start to look and see if there are any other examples of credentialing yeah, or extended scope of practice that yep. have already been done in the hospitals. Yeah, so you can and follow often that lead. other allied health do have credentialing or extended scope of practice approvals, so things like suctioning for physios in ICU. Yes, right. Um, our speech pathologists do swallow assessments, um, sorry, using the, the fees um, mm. equipment. So there often will be other examples to to piggyback off. And, and I've been amazed by how many people have approached me just from an extended scope of practice point of view, that they're not interested in post-pyloric tubes, but yes. they're insulin in insulin dosing or um, IV um, vitamins and mineral prescribing. Mm. So I think there's a real, um, like, there's just so many opportunities that can, can come from something like this. Yeah. So just finally, um, it's it's such an interesting area and it is kind of so novel to dietitians to be doing yeah. this. I mean, I remember years gone by trying to talk dietitians through just pump training, like enteral yeah. feed pump training. And even then there was sort of a bit of hesitancy to actually play with the tubes and sure. like yeah. get the hands on it. So, um, again, if there are dietitians who are sort of interested but like mm, bit bit hesitant, what yep. would your advice be to them um, yeah. in terms of considering going forward with yep. um, getting credentialed? Yeah, I think the first thing is to really understand what you're about to take on. So watching placements, if if you've never watched a nasogastric mm-hmm. tube being put in, um, rather than the little video that you might have seen during yes. university training, I think just having exposure to that. So if you do have um, placements of post-polaric tubes in, the, in your centre, go and watch them and, and become familiar with what that means and what considerations um, there are. Um, I think there is a lot of literature around it as well. So as I mentioned, Stephen Taylor and the patient, uh, the paper by Rosalie Andal um, can give a little bit of insight into what that looks like. Um, I think... It is a confronting procedure for some patients and um, it's it's so out of character for dietitians to be hands-on. So I think I would say don't be scared but also recognise that there are risks associated with it and so you need to go in, I guess, with your eyes open but um, really, yeah, working with other people that have that experience. And it must be really rewarding to think this patient needs feeding yeah. and being able to actually implement that feeding tube positioning and get feeding going it and is. know that you've stopped that delay. And, Definitely. Uh, yeah. I always used to say this when I was doing research and would take blood in that you know exactly if you've you've got it in the right spot or not. In yeah. that you see the blood flash back and you know you've done something well, whereas dietetics is real slow burn benefits. Yes. There's not, you don't often see what you're doing has has immediate impact. So I think being able to place the tube, you you definitely know if you're doing it right or wrong or yeah. if you've had success. So Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. and you can get that feeding going straight away rather than just nagging right. someone else to do it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's great. So, look, thanks, thanks, Leanne. That was great insights. Um. Uh, we might get you to give us the just some links to those um, papers that you mentioned um, so we can put those in the show notes so that people can um, know where to access them. And we will also put a link in the show notes to some more information about the um, Stylet placement system, the bedside um, system for people to have a bit of a read up on if they're interested and we'd also really like to thank Avanos for supporting our podcast today so yeah and thank you very much for your time and good luck with the continued placement of tubes thank you so much jane appreciate it 
To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.